thanks so much. So my name is Nate Creepman, one of the Infectious Disease Fellows, um, if you don't know me. So um, <coughs> since my wife is pregnant, that was kind of how this kind of started. And then I took the, our ITE, and it seemed like that was very important to all this as well. So it was kind of a double piggyback. So um, the first uh, thing that I want to talk about is I think <coughs> whenever we get a consult and you hear that the patient is pregnant, get a little bit of palpitations and you feel nervous. And I think that kind of comes with the stress of you'll potentially be affecting two lives. And I think that's, <clears throat> I know that's my feeling. I'm not sure if everybody else has that feeling. But I know that, <clears throat> you know, you're going to be affecting two lives. The first patient is going to be really a, a young lady. And then you're uh, potentially affecting a child for the rest of his or her life. Um, <clears throat> interestingly, this is from the England Journal, 2011, by uh, malpractice claims by percent annually. And you can see that all the surgical specialties are the most litigious. And then GI, which is also an intervention. But then OBGYN is <clears throat> pretty high up there. It's like number seven. So just Im important to know from that. Uh, we probably fall into the, uh, the really far down, so which is better. But, uh, but still, anywhere where you're having interventions, uh, you're more likely. But still, I mean, OBGYN, <clears throat> I thought historically is pretty high up. Um, I think the big thing that to take away from this talk is um, that the trimesters conceptually are really important. And they're divided a little bit differently. So that one, first to, 1 to 12 is going to be first trimester, 13 to 27, and 28 plus. And we'll, I'll show you a slide about what kind of the development of each. Um, <clears throat> also, the amount of estrogen. Uh, is going to be really, really high in a pregnant woman. So you're going to produce a lot more protein, specifically albumin. And when you're producing that much protein, that you're going to have more albumin, so it's going to bind protein-binding drugs more. So that's going to affect your pathophysiology and the physiology of your drugs. And then you're going to have more blood volume. So again, it's going to affect all of our drugs, the volume distribution, and things like that. So you just have to keep that in mind. Um, <clears throat> as far as uh, development, uh, and going back to the trimesters, if you look here, um, the, the black circles are basically which part can be uh, majorly affected at which week of pregnancy. So the first three weeks, the third week, you're going to have CNS and heart. The fourth and fifth week, I get eyes, heart, and limbs. But if you, if, the reason it's important to realize the trimesters is because really, if you go past, I mean, CNS can affect, be affected throughout the whole time, but past 16 weeks, you're much less likely to affect other organ systems. So I think conceptually that's really important to know that really the most harm that we can cause is going to be in the first trimester. So all of our medications and all of our counseling is really important at the beginning. And the reason I bring up uh, counseling is because if you think about it, especially with some of our HIV medications, if somebody's on Bactrim prior to conception because they're on PTP prophylactic or something like that, you have to be cognizant of that because they're not going to realize they're pregnant until week like eight. And by then, if you would have caused damage, you would have already likely caused the problem. So I think that's really important to know. And along the same lines of the um, kind of harms and risks and things like that with all medications, I think we're all familiar with the 1979 introduction from the FDA of uh, category A through D and then X uh, of drugs. <clears throat> um, if you look at this, this is the way historically all drugs were coming to market, had to have kind of this label. So A means that um, you ha we have good studies they didn't show that there was a risk in the first trimester. And again, specified at the first trimester because that's the time of the highest risk. Then category B, which are probably, I was looking through things as I was going through, almost all of the drugs were class category B, is that we don't have great data. Animal data shows that it's probably OK. Um, <clears throat> C is an interesting one. A lot of drugs are also classified there. Um, that is basically animal studies showed some, but we don't have good data to prove that this harms in humans. So we sometimes use these drugs on a risk versus benefit kind of 
spectrum. And then um, category D even is there is risk, but you'll see that sometimes we use these drugs too if we have no other option. But, um, and then X is we know it causes harm. Again, chemotherapy um, also is category X, right? But in the right situation, sometimes it's going to have to be used. So this is the way I think we're all used to it. And then in uh, 2015, uh, all medicines were supposed to be changed over, actually. It's supposed to happen by 2018, by June 29th. So the new expectation from the FDA for any new drugs coming to market is supposed to be going through pregnancy, lactation, labeling, final rule. So it's supposed to go, uh, and I'll show you guys the format, <clears throat> and they're supposed to basically disclose all the studies and whether it's animal, human, or kind of whichever, and it's disclosing which data proves it. Um, and they also provide you with a phone number of, or who to contact if you have been on that medicine or are planning to be on that medicine because you're supposed to go into this drug registry so we can look at all the. Um, this applies to all drugs after that came to market after 2015. And uh, after the presentation, I can, I can show you guys kind of the, it's an FDA website. And you can see all the drugs that have, are on there. There's a lot of drugs on there. Unfortunately, there were, I didn't see any antibiotics. But that's because that applies to things that came through, uh, prior to 2001, June 20, 2001. And those <clears throat> are not subject to that rule. Um, they are supposed to remove the category A th through D. But and so are supposed to eventually transition. But they're kind of exempt. They're in this weird limbo system. Um, so the, the way it's supposed to look, and I'll show you guys after, is basically they'll say, they'll give you the registry, and they'll give you the risk. Right now, the letters are still there, but they're not supposed to be, just as an interesting aside. But they're there. <clears throat> um, and then they'll tell you um, the data that they're disclosing, like if it was a and animal models out of this many uh, monkeys, rats, whatever they used, this, this, this was the effect that was seen. Or in human studies, this was what was seen. So they have to disclose the study. Um, and then they mention the uh, clinical context of when it may be used. Um, also, they added lactation, which is helpful to us, because I think we sometimes get that question of, can I breastfeed with this medication? And again, the risks and the data. And then the new thing they added, uh, kind of like I mentioned before, is for men and women of reproduction potential, um, kind of the risks and benefits and what should be assessed. Um, I think that uh, the other important thing to kind of uh, note is that, um, you know, we, we all expect all, I know that, you know, when my wife was pregnant for the first time, I, you know, I said, well, my baby to be perfectly healthy, no problems, no complications throughout delivery. Nothing will ever go wrong. And it never goes like that from the beginning. But, you know, uh, <clears throat> you, we expect everything to be perfect. And looking at the data, so uh, the CDC in Atlanta kind of keeps track of any malformations, major or minor, is minor, it is a cleft palate. Anything that it, uh, they, they consider basically either genetic or minor or major, uh, structural defect. And if you look, the number is about 3%. So I think you have to keep that in mind, even with all the studies and everything we're doing, sometimes, yes, we're going to blame the medicines, but some of that is how much of that was really unavoidable is genetic. <clears throat> all right, so come to case number one. So a 22-year-old lady uh, presented uh, a 38 weeks gestation for routine follow-up. Her normal OB-GYN is out of town, so uh, you know, the kind of, they get the cookbook of all the studies that they want to get. This is her first pregnancy. She's on the standard iron and folate. Her viral, she's afibrile, asymptomatic. But her urine culture shows E. coli that is susceptible to ampicillin, nitroferritoin, and Bactrim. So <clears throat> you're the person on call, and you can vote on your phone now, so I'll leave this up, and we'll show the kind of number, what you guys voted. 
so you get called with this for essentially, you know, a pregnant lady who doesn't have any urinary symptoms. So what would you do? Would you give her Bactrim, nitrofurantoin, ampicillin, monitor and treat if symptomatic, call your ID pharmacist or call your attendant? All right, so we'll see. <clears throat> so most people said C. A few said B. So yeah, so good. So everybody kind of uh, went through a question. So pregnant women is one of the few causes that we treat asymptomatic bacteriuria. Um, the reason it's important is because pregnant women, uh, about 4 to 7% of them will have asymptomatic bacteriuria. It's associated with, it gave you a range between 20 to 40% of increased risk of pyelonephritis, uh, preterm labor, lower birth weights, and things like that. Some of the risk factors, which are interesting, were like lower socioeconomic fact, uh, status. Diabetes, history of UTIs, you kind of expect increased age and then increased uh, parity and sexual activity. Um, and most people uh, kind of got that right. I think when I first looked at that question, I think nitrofurantoin, which we use all the time, um, I felt like when I was in OB, has a long history of use. But you, if you look at the FDA label, it actually says that <clears throat> in the first trimester, you can use it, but if there were no suitable alternatives, it's category B which again, most of our drugs are. And it can be used in the first, uh, first line in the second and third trimester, but um, <clears throat> there's been multiple studies. One of them was in Norway, which they looked at 180,000 births, and they saw that um, <clears throat> there were some less birth weights and some negative outcomes, nothing that was major, but that was a concern, um, and then a lot of, uh, some infants had more neonatal jaundice, which was clinically significant. And then showed that it can cause hemolytic anemia. So for that reason, actually, when you're close to term, you should try to avoid it, which would be very close, because if you increase the bilirubin, uh, there's a theoretical risk of cardiacteris. So you want to avoid that. Um, and then um, <clears throat> there was some other negative outcomes. So avoiding the first and near the end, um, which was interesting. Bactrim, I think, we all knew to avoid in the first trimester because of folic acid inhibition um, and increased risk of neural tube defects. But also, um, you can actually use it in the second trimester too, but you should also avoid it in the last uh, part of pregnancy because it can also induce increased uh, or hyperbilirubin. So you guys knew the correct answer, which was ampicillin. Uh, ampicillin is safer. It has a higher risk of failure, as we know, where beta-lactams or penicillins are <clears throat> uh, farther down the line to use for UTIs. So you actually should uh, tr uh, re repeat a urine culture at about a week after. Somewhat controversial are is also to obtain monthly urine cultures in these women. But those both are softer recommendations that will like uh, be recommendations from IDSA. All right, so kind of <clears throat> moving on to the next case. A 27-year-old lady uh, presented to established care. She's 18 weeks pregnant and has newly diagnosed HIV on routine screening, which all of our pregnant ladies get, hepatitis, syphilis. Um, she doesn't have any medical history, denies alcohol, tobacco, or drug use, no allergies. Her hepatitis surface B antigen, uh, antibodies positive, antigen and core are negative, negative syphilis, negative urine culture, CD4-250 viral load, <coughs> 95,000, and negative HLA-B571. So <clears throat> what would you do next for this person? Would you hold antiretrovirals until the baby is born and then start? Would you give no antiretrovirals but recommend a C-section and an AZT prior to delivery? Would you obtain genotype and then start abacavir, lamivir, and raltegravir? Would you start abacavir, lamivir, and immediately? Would you give tenofovir, abdrasidabine, raltegravir? Or would you give altegravir, copecystatin, abdrasidabine, tenofovir? <coughs> so let's see what most people So most people said, oh. 
Oh, sorry. Hold on, let me go. Sorry, guys. I forgot to put the next question. Okay, just put your answer again. Sorry. We can watch this. It should work now. There you go. <coughs> oh, so E is winning. I'm, I don't. I don't actually recall the answer. You guys want to see it again? <laughs> oh, it exited my PowerPoint doctor. So most people said either E or F, which we'll talk about. <coughs> oh, my goodness. All right, so <coughs> most people said either dutanofum, tricytabine, raltegravir, or genvoia, essentially. So, uh, so the first line recommendations um, are basically you can choose either and a back of ear, lamivudin backbone, uh, I mean, sorry, a back of ear, a back of ear, lamivudin, or tenofovir, emtricitabine, or you can even do tenofovir with lamivudine, um, <clears throat> plus either, more specifically, actually, the strongest recommendation is to do raltegravir, or you can do uh, the, the two NRTI backbone with a PI. Um, so the things that we do know is we should not use elotegravir or cobicistat. And that really comes from, conceptually, boosters in pregnancy. And that goes back to the concept of increased protein and then blood distribution. So boosters kind of work on the fact that you're going to boost these drug levels. But in pregnancy, with more estrogen, albumin, and things like that, that doesn't necessarily hold true. And you'll actually have lower therapeutic levels. So that's important. Uh, Maravaroc and, and Furotide should not be used, and <clears throat> I think intuitively we think that since TAF came to market, has been a better medicine that we should, or safer medicine from a renal and bone perspective, we should use that, but there's not enough data, as well as Dalutegravir. So we just don't have enough data, but you can use it, um, but still avoid it um, unless you had to, and then you can avoid H2 blockers and PPIs and these PI regimens, which was highlighted. The reason I brought that up, too, is because a lot of women are going to have reflux symptoms, and they're going to take PPIs sometimes, but more H2 blockers and calcium that will affect its absorption. Um, the other things to avoid for sure, because we ha know that they have toxicity risk, are stadavudine, didanosine, and uh, dose, uh, treatment dose ritonavir. And then <clears throat> I think a really important thing is, um, kind of been brought up, is if we should wait or not, should you wait for resistance testing, should you wait for follow-up, and really the recommendation is you should not, because your goal is to reduce the as fast as possible um, and as effectively as you can so that you can reduce the risk of transmission. So um, <clears throat> if you look at it, the longer you wait, the higher risk. So if you look at the trimesters for preconception, if you're diagnosed, you only have a 0.2%, but then you go to 0.4, 0.9, as you're kind of progressing through trimesters because you have less time to get them virally suppressed, essentially. So your goal is to get them down as fast as you can. All right. Uh, so the next question, or <coughs> uh, so 27-year-old uh, with HIV, not compliant with ART, presents with headache. Oh, let me move the question. Oh, sorry. 
Oh, yeah, sorry. Yes, it would be Travada Centris. Is the best. Is the best. It crashed again. And that's from uh, AIDS info. But yeah, the best answer there would have been Travada Centris, yes. <coughs> All right. I'll just abandon the voting, I guess. Um, so, and, the, and then the reason that's the best answer is because you don't want to use Dolly Checker unless you had to, and then you cannot use Genvoya because of the Cobisystat. Um, you shouldn't hold ART, and then uh, you don't need to wait for the resistance profile. All right, so 27-year-old <coughs> HIV non-compliant presents with headache, photophobia, neck stiffness, and then is also found to be 11 weeks pregnant, febrile to 101, tachycardic to 110, BP 100 over 90, um, <coughs> photophobia, CD4 of 20, viral load 100,000, normal LFTs, bullets 152, and CSF with cryptococcal antigen positive with a high opening pressure. So <coughs> since it keeps crashing whenever I vote, uh, so what do you guys think the most appropriate treatment of this patient? So fluconazole, fluconazole with five of flucytosine, Amphotericin with fluconazole, fluconazole with fluconazole, amphotericin B alone, amphotericin with fluconazole, or fluconazole. <laughs> As Christina just presented, like four days ago. What do you think, Christina? <laughs> yeah, so just amphotericin would be the best answer in this situation. Um, so, <clears throat> cryptococcal meningitis. There is no real great data, no perspective data. Um, <clears throat> amphotericin uh, is grade B, like we talked about, which is, um, you know, maybe some in mice or animals, but nothing in humans. Uh, conventional dosing and conventional amphotericin B is what's been most used. So that's what's recommended, which is just interesting. And then you would recommend that for four weeks of induction. Fluconazole, um, it was interesting because all the guidelines I was reading through initially, fluconazole was always a grade C and was actually upgraded to a grade D recently. So that's important to know. Um, and I think that was one of the other big learning points that I got from as I was looking through a lot of these cases is that <clears throat> all these recommendations for these drugs change rapidly and you wouldn't even think to look and it's already changed. And even as I was looking through the guidelines, it's only when I went to the FDA site that this was noted. So that's kind of important. Um, and then you should never really use in the first trimester because that, that's where all the worst data is. Um, and then flucytosine is grade C. Um, and then <clears throat> another uh, important thing, so whenever uh, a woman is pregnant, kind of we'll talk about a little later too, but the immune system is kind of innately decreased cellular immunity because probably, you know, so you don't reject the baby. So the other thing important to know is that as after post-delivery, you should actually monitor for iris as well. Um, and that's kind of uh, important through there. So the, the other question would come up, this lady's 18 weeks pregnant. You would give her four weeks of induction of amphotericin B what would, you guys, would you, what would you guys do after that? Anybody? Amphotericin? Yeah, so I think amphotericin, you could do amphotericin. And, and another choice, an option through guidelines is you, you could, on a risk-benefit discussion, you talk about using fluconazole. The greatest risk is going to be in the first trimester. So you could use fluconazole theoretically. So I think that's kind of where things kind of get hazy is, you know, they tell you this drug is category D. You should not use it because it could cause harm. But then... If you look through the guidelines even and you go into the situations, they say, well, we have no choice really, so we have to use the drug because we don't have any other option really. Um, <clears throat> so that's interesting as well. So uh, next question is a 22-year-old G1, 12 weeks pregnant uh, lady with uh, HIV. Uh, she's not been on ART and presents shortness of breath. She has two to three months of symptoms, non-productive cough, and worsening shortness of breath. She's tachypnic. Has diffuse crackles and is 84% in room air. Creatinine of 1, RLFTs, Bicarb 26. ABG shows PA of 
two of sixty. Check section yes, has diffuse infiltrate and sputum cytology is positive for PCP. So <clears throat> consulted, what would you recommend? Would you recommend IV Bactrim and steroids, PO Bactrim, Tovacolm with steroids, Tovacolm or just daylight Tovacolm with steroids, VIT Tovacolm with steroids, Clinda with permaquine, and steroids, Dapsone, Trimapterine, and Prednisone. <coughs> Since my voting is not working, I guess I'll just with a ventured guess amongst friends. You think always. E. So it's basically the question is, in a PCP, severe PCP pneumonia, um, what should you treat a pregnant lady even in the first trimester really with? And per the AIDS info guidelines, the answer is actually Bactrim, which I was really, really surprised to actually see. Uh, grade A3, because they said Bactrim is it's that much better than all the other drugs that you should risk uh, the patient not dying who's in severe with PCP pneumonia, you should, that is the best choice. Get, even that you know that you have an increased risk of neurotrophic defects, cardiovascular, and urinary tract uh, abnormalities. And then you should, they said you could consider given, giving a really high dose of folic acid to try to circumvent that. There was some small amount of data that said it could help but nothing robust, but I think you're not going to cause folic acid toxicity. <laughs> so you just give the folic acid high doses. Um, steroids, are, of course, are uh, indicated with somebody with severe PCP. Um, case control and system, uh, systematic review shows that you have an increased risk of cleft palate. But again, it's really indicated. Um, and then that didn't hold up in other large uh, population data, didn't hold through, but important to note. Uh, Dapsone does cross the placenta, can cause hemolytic anemia, and is a sulfa drug. Um, and it can be used uh, with uh, termemterine uh, in, uh, in, in, in the uh, moderate to mild uh, disease if you wanted to, but still. Um, Bactrim is really the drug of choice. Pentamidine should not be used because it's embryotoxic. We don't have much data with the tovaclone, so that's why that's, that wasn't even as an alternative option uh, in the guidelines. And then primaquine is also, uh, try, we don't use that in pregnancy because it has a high risk of hemolysis, so it's also avoided. So the best answer in that situation would have been Bactrim. Um, a 22-year-old lady uh, who's eight weeks pregnant, uh, immigrated from India, and then as part of the, if, you, if anybody else has immigrated, as part of the routine testing, at gifts of labs, many labs, uh, one of which is Quantifiron uh, Gold now probably, uh, I think it was PPD for me back then. But anyways, uh, you, she gets a reactive Quantifiron Gold, the rest of her labs are normal, creatinine, LFTs, et cetera. And then she presents to your clinic for evaluation of latent tuberculosis treatment. So what would you recommend? <clears throat> INH, <laughs> INH with V6, uh, rifapentine with INH because you want the shortest course you can give her because she's pregnant. Would you just defer treatment until days after delivery, <laughs> defer treatment until three months after delivery? give her fampin or call Dr. Cassanius, which is probably what would be the person you call first. The fastest, the fastest answer would be call Dr. Cassanius. <laughs> what do you think? I'll go down the line. What do you think, Mish? What would you do? Would you wait for a couple of days? Would you wait for a couple of months? Three months. Okay. Yeah. So, <clears throat> latent tuberculosis and pregnancy. Um, the real kind of take-home point is kind of what Mish said. Um, you defer treatment unless you really, really need to treat them for high risk. So, um, <clears throat> the concept in that is that TB drugs are toxic. 
I mean, hepatotoxicity can cause liver injury. And in pregnancy, you are more predisposed to the hepatotoxicity uh, for up to three months post-delivery. Um, again, probably just the catabolic state and the fact that all these uh, you know, chemical problems are going on. And uh, <clears throat> the reason you would treat is if that HIV would be an indication, if they need to be immunosuppressed, uh, if they've had recent contact, it's also an indication to treat. And the reason that is is because if you just had recent contact with somebody with tuberculosis, that's the highest time risk that you're going to get active tuberculosis. So that's what you're preventing, trying to prevent again. Um, INH is the treatment of choice to give it would be six. And it's important to know that it's excreting or breast milk, but not at high enough concentrations to either treat the baby, which is important if you, the baby is born tuberculosis, but it's also <clears throat> relatively safe as we, you know, as much as you can say. But you can give it, but you should not really even says, uh, in the CDC guideline said, do not discourage breastfeeding, which is also All right. <clears throat> so along the same lines, not the same 22-year-old, but we'll say, 22-year-old lady presents with hemoptysis, night sweats, fevers, the productive cough, Tmax 99, heart rate 108, low pressure 104 over 76, crackles on exam, AFB positive, MTV PCR positive, CBC CMP normal, and you see a cavitary lesion. So if you have a 22-year-old lady with um, <clears throat> active tuberculosis. So what would you do now? Rifampin, INH, PZA, and Thambutol, right? Rifampin, INH, and Thambutol, whole treatment, two to three months postpartum. Rifampin, INH, and Thambutol, and streptomycin, Rifampin, INH, and Thambutol. Or, which is, cannot, I'll give you this, like F cannot be a wrong answer. Oh, you call Dr. Kusanis. <clears throat> yeah, we'll say in the U.S. We'll say this is a U.S. born. Yeah. Anthony, I'll defer to you since I'm going in my little circle. Okay, agreed. Yeah, so you want treatment because you have a high risk of morbidity, right? What are you, which ones are you debating? So, right? Yeah, so that's the question. That's right. So that's kind of the question is, are any components of ripe teratogenic? And that is actually a complicated answer. Um, so PZA uh, is complicated. And the reason it is is because WHO recommends it, but in the U.S., the CDC does not. So it really depends. That's why Dr. Montero actually asked, where are you treating this patient? Because in the United States, you don't want to use it. Um, it's a great C by the CDC. And looking even through the WHO, and even the FDA, they said, well, there's not great data that it causes harm, but may cause harm, so we just don't use it. But the implication of that is that now you've bought this patient nine months of treatment because you can't use the PZA. So that's conceptually important. Um, you, again, breastfeeding is not contraindicated. And it, it, it's interesting that it men mentions don't discourage the patient from breastfeeding. So I think, I mean, I, it's just interesting that's kind of the way they phrase it. Streptomycin. Um, had uh, a noted 16% ototoxicity risk for the fetus, so that's why we don't do it. And then the correct answer, kind of like Anthony brought up, is you have to treat, you should treat because of higher morbidity. You can have a high risk of low birth weight, um, and the infant baby can be born with tuberculosis, which would also be less than ideal, but um, that's kind of, uh, basically they said that the risk of harm is greater than the risk of the medication side effect. How would you test the newborn? Oh, sure. So, so, and anybody? Hmm. Yeah. It's actually for a newborn, it's a placenta. Oh. Yes, it's a placenta. Placenta is the true. And then, um, importantly, kind of, whereas you can't use quantiferon in children, 
listen for because you the IGRA is not specific enough. Wow. Well, I guess if the baby had tuberculosis, probably. Who knows? Yeah. There's no right answer. I don't think there's guidelines for that one. <laughs> Isolation. Isolation, yeah. What are we going to say, Luis? <laughs> All right, moving on from that. Uh, um, <clears throat> next uh, question. Is a 25-year-old lady, 22 weeks of gestation presents uh, because she needs to travel to Kenya next week for an emergency. Yeah. <laughs> she has had a normal pregnancy with no problems. Her G6PD is normal. Her labs are normal. And she's referred to you, to Johanna, which is a perfect segue because Johanna has presented this. Uh, so which agent would you recommend for give a prophylaxis? Would you give atovaquin, proguanol, chloroquine, mefloquine, doxycycline, primaquine, or tell her, do not travel? <laughs> so, uh, so Johanna said mefloquine, which is the correct answer. So interestingly, in the CDC, before any drugs, the first thing it says is don't travel. That's the first thing it says. It says, tell them not to travel. Um, <laughs> but they're going to travel, so what's the next step? But it's, that's the first recommendation, which is interesting. So the best drug is no drug. Um, uh, <clears throat> Mephiloquine, uh, the biggest downside is its neuropsychiatric side effects, but it's the safest medication to give during pregnancy from malaria prophylaxis. Atovacone pregnant is category C. And like I said before, atovacone, there's just not great data yet. Chloroquine, the reason you wouldn't want to use that is Kenya has higher incidence of chloroquine resistance. And then we don't want to use my favorite drug, which is doxycycline in pregnancy. And then uh, primaquine, we talked about, uh, you avoid because of um, high risk of hemolysis. So you correctly recommended the patient to take mefloquine. But she was concerned about the neuropsychiatric problems and that affected the baby, so she didn't take it. So now she presents with <laughs> fever, chill, abdominal pains, hemoglobin of 7.6, platelets 105, and LFTs 1.4, and 10% of her slides show this. Yeah. <laughs> so what would you recommend for her to do? Would you recommend clindamycin, chloroquine, treat her with mefloquine because she didn't take it, call the malaria hotline, the CDC. There is a number. I'll, I'll show you that. Uh, artusinate-based therapy, doxycycline with quinidine gluconate, arthmer, lumifantrine. <laughs> Adam, I think you're, <laughs> you're the one up for that one. Okay, fair. Um, gosh, doxycycline, she's still pregnant, I'd probably avoid Okay, yeah, doxycycline you would want to avoid because of the pregnancy, sure. Be down to Cone, CDC, Mephiloquine, the first two neighbors. Uh, <laughs> I, like, I like F, but I have no clue. Okay, fair enough. So um, <clears throat> there is a CDC hotline. So looking all this up, the CDC will give you the number available 24 hours a day. So very important, very easy to kind of look. Um, and we'll talk about the answer in just a second. So malaria is uh, more common. It can be more common in pregnant women. It also presents as more severe infections, probably based on the, the big concept of decreased immunity, uh, cellular immunity specifically. Um, also, they think that, uh, you know, women hyperventilate, so they think because of the CO2 uh, production that it attracts more mosquitoes. And then I can't remember which country this was, but th they basically looked at pregnant women versus not pregnant women, and the mosquito nets had way more mosquitoes trapped in the pregnant woman nets than the non-pregnant woman nets. <laughs> I don't know how, uh, how robust, how well this kind of study was, but just so you know. Uh, P. falciparum uh, is 
is the most likely to be the one diagnosed here, right, because of the comma shaped. <laughs> and uh, it's special because it can sequester in the intravillous space. They actually make specific antigens and antibodies, and they prefer the placenta. And the, and the certain population that produces that antigen is the one that will be breed out. So um, that's important to know. And then they get, pregnant women get more severe disease, and their increased risk, again, conceptually in multiple different processes for severity of disease for 60 days post. Um, Non-immune patients, so with that, what I mean by that is that if you live in the United States and you traveled to a malaria endemic region, or you were in an area, even in the same country, that doesn't have a lot of malaria, and you go to an area with malaria, you're going to have a more severe disease because you don't have any baseline immunity, and then you haven't been exposed over and over, so you don't have antibodies. Um, and HIV also has a worse outcome. Uh, it's a uh, lower birth weights, high risk of miscarriage, preterm uh, births. Um, the recommendation, the first thing is, you tell them, don't go there if you don't have to go there. I mean, that's, yeah. Uh, if you're native, there's, uh, so, th so again, this is kind of global health versus the United States, kind of how we do things. So there are some uh, recommendations to actually prophylax intermittently pregnant women in high to medium uh, uh, kind of uh, risk areas with, uh, and you use the sulfadoxin permethamine, and you do that uh, three times during the pregnancy. And then <clears throat> treatment in pregnancy really depends on the severity, and that's kind of where we come to the answer kind of that question. So chloroquine and clindamycin is generally safe. If you have mild malaria, that's the first go-to uh, regimen. Unfortunately, this patient had 10% parasitemia, signs of anorganic damage, so have severe malaria. So for that, you would go to uh, artemisin-based uh, regimens. Uh, quinine can also be used. It causes more hypoglycemia. That used to be the treatment of choice before uh, the new uh, drugs. You want to avoid tetracyclines, doxycycline, permaquine, and a medication I've never heard of, which is nilofantrine. Um, again, severe malaria, basically end organ damage, more than 5%. Um, if you need to use artemisin, you need to call the CDC. Based on an IND protocol, they will ship you the medications. Call the CDC. <laughs> you have to get that through the CDC. Um, and then, yes. It's IP. So you are just. You can only go through the CD. So they'll, they'll like helicopter or they'll like ship it to you. We had to use it once. Yeah, it's a mess. It's a mess. Um, and if it's uncomplicated, <laughs> it's very easy to get it, right? That's true. Well, this was challenging. I think they really want to be convinced that the patient has a severe valsiparamolar to release the drug. Right. Then the other two choices, the tovacolpragmanone and the arthamir, are basically you. That's category C, so you only use them if you have no other option. <clears throat> All right, <clears throat> that was a lot of talking. So case nine: uh, 28-year-old medical student uh, is planning to become pregnant. She has completely no medical history, normal exam, but throughout her rotations, she got exposed to somebody with CMV. At one time or another. <laughs> so she wants your recommendation on how to proceed because she's planning to get pregnant and she knows too many things. The most dangerous thing is like a patient had, a translant patient had CMV colitis and she went and she was examining the patient. What the blood, but within the room with the patient with diarrhea. So what would you tell her to do? <laughs> so would you treat with sedofavir? Would you treat with sedofavir before pregnancy? Would you treat her with valgancyclovir when she's pregnant? Would you treat her with gancyclovir when she's pregnant? Would you give a? Would you get a baseline IgG IgM now? Would you give 
hypermutant globulin once she's pregnant, or is there no therapy you can give? <laughs> so that that's that tough question comes to Louise. <laughs> and that's probably the honestly the best answer out of kind of the options we have. Yeah. <laughs> With confidence, but you have to say that with a lot of confidence. Yeah. Um, so the women who are at greatest risk are women caring for really young children and daycares, or if you're, I guess, a hospital worker exposed to body fluids and things like that, what Dr. Sam was alluding to, uh, CMV. And then the pregnant women, pregnant women who you should test are pregnant women emphasize that, I should have put it in there, that have mono-like illness or you get an ultrasound and it shows findings that are concerning like calcification and things like that. Now, once you get, and you raise concern for this, you'll get the antibodies, which we'll talk about in a second because that's a whole kind of bag of worms that you're going to open up. And the reason you get that is because your next step, depending on how you interpret that, is going to be an amniocentesis for the antibodies for the baby. And really, it's not because there's any therapy. Some people, there's some data that Valgan cyclovir can cross the placenta because it concentrates there. But there is no data on any therapy. So I think that's important to just note as however you're pursuing this. Because really, you get the amniocentesis to see, is this baby going to have a torch? Is it, are they going to have CMV and have other complicated problems. Uh, so really supportive care um, and then antiretrovirals could be used to decrease endocrine damage to the patient specifically, not to the fetus. And there's no data on how that reduces transmission. There was one study about uh, hyperimmune globulin which was published in JAMA, so I think it got people ramped up, but it wasn't proven in a different study. So th there's no recommendation to really use that. Okay, so at the antibodies, you want to get IgM and IgG. And no matter how you really get them at first, if you're really concerned, where you're going to have to get next is get to a subspecialized lab. And it actually said in the guidelines, it recommended against getting it through like a, uh, like a, a commercial lab, you should get a specialized lab because then you're going to look at the avidity of the IgG. And based on that, so if, you know, the <clears throat> case you would think you'd be most concerned about is the positive IgM and a negative IgG, but then you have to look at the avidity of it. So if there's no, <clears throat> so that, because that could be a false positive. So then you repeat it to see. And then if you have an IgM and IgG both positive, that avidity will uh, kind of help dif differentiate those things for you. <clears throat> Again, Really, the best answer for that would be there's no great data of what to do. And then Gero stepped away from his question, so I guess we'll move back there. But a uh, 22-year-old lady, 24 weeks pregnant, presents to you with a positive RPR. She reports two male partners, one recently treated for syphilis. She, she was given ceftriaxone. She says that <coughs> she's had ceftriaxone in the past as part of her STD treatment, but also got penicillin and had anaphylaxis. So she really, really doesn't want to try the penicillin, but she wants it, but she could. So Shiloh, what do you think, what would you do for this lady? Would you treat her with penicillin, treat her with ceftriaxone, give her doxy, treat her with azithral, or call Dr. Tony and do that? Right, so no matter what, no matter how much they want to convince you, still like you learn in medical school and the whole time you give them penicillin, um, no matter what, essentially. Um, there is some data, I was trying to look, <clears throat> there, was, there have been studies in Germany and somewhere in, I can't remember where, which country, it was, it was in Asia, that they're trying to use some ceftriaxone, but there wasn't great data either way. Um, and then uh, an RPR uh, may not appropriately decrease, but it d depends on uh, multiple fractures which are. So it's really going to be hard if you need a repeat to determine which way. Uh, but you should <clears throat> really, really always uh, give penicillin. And Dr. Berger, the reason I want to bring up, so he is uh, one of my mentors from 
uh, UK. And what he said uh, during Morning Report a couple of times is that basically the worst thing that can happen to you as a physician is that you could do the wrong thing and good things happen. So in that situation, you know, where we're trying to, we know we're having worse data with ceftriaxone and the patient's going to try and twist your arm because they're declining to use it, you could potentially get away with it once, but the, the thing that can happen is eventually just by stats, you'll eventually get burned on that. Um, and then case 10 is a 26-year-old lady, 36 weeks pregnant, came to ED with fever, photophobia, neck stiffness. ED <clears throat> puts her on antibiotics, gets an LP. They put her on VANC, epicillin, ceftriaxone, and cyclovir. You're called, Mindy, because you see this on the gram stain. So, based on that gram stain, how would you change your antibiotics? Or would you, would you give her VANC, ceftriaxone, epicillin? Vancomycin, ampicillin alone, ampicillin, presgentamicin, vancomycin, and rocephin, vancomycin, and cephalin. What do you think of the diagnosis? Any idea? It was, uh, it was a, it's a rod, gram positive rod. It was a rod. Gram variable, actually, gram variable rod would be what you do it. Listeria, right, so you think listeria because the decreased immunity. <clears throat> for meningitis. See, ampicillin. So ampicillin alone, I think, is definitely part of the gamut. Um, <clears throat> and looking through it, it's not as hard and firm recommendations, really. So the uh, so pregnant women are more predisposed to hysteria because of decreased cellular immunity. Uh, you can get GI symptoms and things like that. They're more likely to get a bacteremia, for which you would always use ampicillin. But <clears throat> some of the things I was looking at is ampicillin and gentamicin is preferred. Uh, but all the data for the gentamicin is only in vitro data. There's no in vivo data, really. But um, in meningitis, you consider that. And then just as a side note, most of these... In Infection occur in the third trimester. Um, Bactrim, Vank, and Miropenem are all alternatives to use uh, for listeria. And then, um, basically, uh, my conclusion for this talk was academic integrity. Really, what I meant by that is that everything changes all the time. Even fluconazole change in the in the you know you read one guideline and you kind of look something else up. Um, so I don't think. I think whenever you approach these patients, you're going to have to look up at the current category, especially with the labeling system, of what's really going on. You're going to have to look that up because the data truly is evolving. And for a lot of these drugs, there's not great recommendations because there's not great data. It's kind of the things we've done and we think are doing okay. Um, and with that, these are my references. Really good information to look things up. We're through the CDC and AIDS info. I think we're the most helpful, but kind of other things. I'll take questions.